This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Welcome to The Final Curtain. Ordinary New Zealanders telling their stories about death. I'm Shirley Welsh, host of Death Cafe Dunedin, where people meet in all sorts of places to drink tea, eat cake and discuss death. In this program, we break the taboo around talking about death and hear firsthand from New Zealanders about their experiences and their perspectives. Today I'm telling my story about the death of my mother to Jeff Harford and the insights I gained from living through the experience. Shirley, thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk to you and put you on the other side of the microphone today. I'm sure your story is really interesting and one that all our listeners will enjoy and take much from. So let's let's start with a little bit about your mother. Tell us about her. She was not a touchy-feely sort of mother. She was very intellectual and very uh, unemotional. In other words, she didn't express how she felt much. Um, she was very proud and very dignified. So, um, and she was very active, physically very active. I always felt as a child like I was a foal running alongside a horse. Um, if, I, if you wanted to talk to my mother, you had to do so on the gallop. <laughs> had you and her ever discussed her death before she died? Absolutely. She was vehement that she never, ever wanted to be in a compromised position. And if she ever was in a coma, for example, she wanted to die. And this was contrary to her religious beliefs because she was very, very devoutly religious. But she was quite adamant that in the event that she was in a coma, that that I was to pull the plug. And we had a deal, if you like, where she prepared a living will and in which she um, uh, she said that she didn't want any life-saving measures taken in the event that she was in a coma, and I also prepared one too. And we had this sort of deal that I'd look out for her, she'd look out for me, if we were ever to find ourselves in this situation. Interesting that that should happen. What, what ages were you respectively when you first started having those conversations? Oh, my mum would have been in her... 60s perhaps and I would have been in my 20s perhaps and so for her at that point she wasn't facing any particular pending medical crisis absolutely not she was as healthy and as fit as anything but it was a conversation we had often and I was very clear on what her wishes were and she was very clear on mine and we shared those wishes living wills are living documents as well aren't they did you spend any time revising those revisiting those as time went by I don't think we did really but our our views didn't change so up until the incident that I'll describe occurred nothing had happened that would have altered either of our viewpoints was she afraid of death No, because she was very, very religious. In fact, she found life on earth a source of annoyance, I think. She flatly believed that she was going to heaven, and that's where she wanted to be. And being on earth was just an irritating interlude to getting to the place where she was supposed to be. So she had absolutely no fears whatsoever about death. 
she might have been afraid about dying and certainly she was very afraid about having a prolonged death and hence the living will and the agreement with me. Did that rub off on you? Were you did you have a similar view? Absolutely. I didn't share her view that I was going to heaven. So my own view was I didn't know what happened after I died. I And if it was just nothingness, which I suspected it might be, that was okay for me. I didn't want a long and lingering death either. Tell us about the, um, the process for your mother. Uh, what happened that resulted in her death? Well, it was very, in a way... The, her, it took her a while to die, but what the, the incident that resulted in her death was very, very sudden. On the morning of the incident, my mother was doing what my mother did, which was rushing around wildly. On this occasion, she was training her dog, t- doing agility training. So literally running around a field, taking the dog through hoops over, over cans, etc. She was about 76 at the time, but she was very agile and very fit. So she was perfectly healthy and happy. She'd driven the dog to agility training. She'd done the training. She'd come home. But prior to this, she had been to the dentist. And when she was at the dentist, a fragment of tooth or filling had gone into her eye. At the time, we lived in South Africa, and they didn't use protective eyewear at the dentist. Anyway, something had gone into her eye, and she had gotten an infection. She'd been given medication for it by the chemist and was, had been administering, administering these drops into her eye. Unbeknown to her, though, the drops that she'd been given by the chemist were contraindicated with medication she was taking, which was a blood-thinning medication. And so that morning she'd been fine, but as a result of taking this wrong medication, she had a brain hemorrhage. She was at... She was at home and she suddenly had this blinding headache and thought she was going to vomit, felt very ill. My father, who was a doctor, in fact a heart specialist, was at home with my brother and when she started vomiting and grabbing at her head and saying, oh, I'm so sick, I feel so terrible, and collapsing, my father knew exactly what was wrong with her. In a way, unfortunately, he also knew exactly what to do and how to treat it. So what he did was he immediately provided her with the emergency care and then he and my brother raced her to the local hospital. It wasn't far away. And of course when she was brought to the hospital by my father, being a doctor, she was given emergency treatment and taken straight into surgery where emergency brain surgery was performed on her. Had this not occurred... And had she been at home alone, for example, she would have died there and then. But she didn't. As a result of the surgery, the pressure was removed from her brain, but she never actually recovered. And she went into the very coma that she so feared. And she was in a coma for about two months. But I'm going to step back a bit and say how I came to know of this incident. So I was in New Zealand, she was in South Africa, and I got a phone call while standing in a shop about what had happened. And of course, I immediately arranged to get to South Africa because I realised, uh-oh, 
This is the very incident of which we spoke. She was now in a coma. She had a living will, and she and I had this deal. So that's what I did. Caught a plane and flew to South Africa. Distressing for your family to be present while all that was going on. Distressing for you to be on the other side of the world. You would have felt the pressure of time. Yes. And then when I got there and saw her in the state she was, was ghastly. She was in ICU. My mother was a very proud and dignified person. And there she was with this shaved head. She had this cut in her skull and these big staples. She was wearing nappies, as I recall, so she certainly couldn't control her bowel functions. And she was lying in the ICU with, as I recall, her mouth open and I thought redlining. So they indicate the different levels of coma and she was at the the bottom level. In other words, she was literally um, as deep in a coma as one could be. Completely unresponsive. Completely unresponsive. When I arrived, my father, as I said, was a, as a doctor, said, Oh, Shirl, look, your mum, your mum is responding to you. And he said to my mum, Mum, look, Pearl's here, Pearl's here. And he said, look, she's responding. But when I looked, I couldn't see any response. Now, I know they do say that when people are in a coma, the last function to go is hearing, and that people do hear things when they seem absolutely unresponsive. But from my perspective, I couldn't see any response from her, and I didn't think that she knew that I was present. So here you were with the situation you had talked about with your mother, with undertakings that you'd given to each other, mm-hmm. you no doubt being very mindful of all of that, and that's part of why you rushed to be there. So the next question is obvious. Mm-hmm. Were you able to fulfill that promise to her? No, I couldn't. She actually left ICU and was transferred because she could breathe on her own. So there was no plug to pull. So the first thing was, if I had agreed to pull a plug... There wasn't one. But also in the reality of the situation, it was one thing to laugh with my mother and say, I'll pull your plug and you pull my plug. But in the actual situation where you called upon to pull a plug and all the legal ramifications there would be if you did pull the plug was a different matter. But also it never occurred to me or her that there wouldn't be a plug, that that actually you could be in a coma, but you would still be functioning on some level and then to terminate her life would actually have required me to actively end it I mean sort of pillow over the face sort of stuff and we'd never talked about that so I was in a situation that we hadn't spoken about and I hadn't anticipated which was of course very surprising for me Can you recall how the living will expressed what you thought it needed to around this. Can you remember that? As I recall, it, it just said that no life-prolonging treatment was to be given to her and or anything that had been initiated to be terminated. 
Which I think in reality for her meant that now that she was in the situation, she wasn't to be given any food intravenously um, and no medication. But that raised its own issues because, as I said, my mother was the kind of person who wasn't very emotionally expressive. But suddenly I saw people gathering around her. My father as the doctor. He was playing the role of the doctor and taking care of her, but also the role of a husband of over 50 years. And there were my brothers, my five brothers who gathered around her. And she was, she was performing a role of uniting the family. Also, she wasn't going anywhere. Mm. It wasn't as if she was the galloping horse that I was used to running alongside. She was stationary. And there we were gathered around her. So this situation had got much more complex than you had envisaged when you first talked about this with her and becoming only more complicated, I guess, as time went by. Absolutely. And of course, also, we didn't all share the same view. So my father, as a doctor and as a devout Christian, was of the view that his job was to preserve and prolong life. And he wasn't there to be engaged in anything to shorten her life. And so, and he was her husband and my father. So that was the first thing. Was um, he, and he would have been the first person that the medical authorities would have gone to about that? Yes, he would have. Regardless of what you and your mother had agreed? Exactly. That's right. And so, but also I thought, hang on, who am I? I'm the daughter who lives in New Zealand. I'm going to get on a plane in a week or two and fly back to my life in New Zealand. The people who are going to be left around this bedside with her are my father and my brothers. Who am I to come in and dictate what should or shouldn't happen to her when they are the ones who are going to have to execute that decision? So, for example, it's one thing for me to say, don't give her any medication to prolong her life but it's for them to actually watch her with an infection it's for them to watch her not being fed so it was just a complexity Were your family aware of the living wills? Yes they were Did they, they have were. They express a view about it? They certainly didn't share uniformly her view or my view on it for sure and in South Africa at the time, doctors would have considered a living will and taken it into account, but it certainly wasn't something that they were obliged to follow. It was just a view she'd expressed and that they would be co- conscious of. Shirley, you touched on your mother, even in this effectively vegetative state, mm-hmm. performing the role of the mother. Mm. Tell us a little bit more about that. Well, what was amazing was how unifying it was. We all gathered around her bed. It was almost like we were gathering around a dinner table. We would laugh and talk and and my father occasionally would say, remember where you are, you were around your mother's bed. And and it actually took some reminding because we were we were very united and we also talked to her. So it was quite hard to talk to my mother about touchy-feely sort of things because, as I say, she was running. But when she was lying in bed and going nowhere, it was a lot easier to talk to her about how we felt about her and also to get from her that which we needed, 
which was her presence without her going anywhere, just being there. And that's what she was for us. So her personality was present yes. uh, in you all. Yes, mm. it was. And it was, it was an amazing time. So I suspect what my mother would have wanted was a rapid death, and she, she was deprived of that. However, what was astonishing for me was the fact that she didn't get her way was incredibly healing for everybody else. She lived for two months in a coma before she eventually died. And in that two months, the family was bonded and my father could be the doctor and the husband and we kids could all be the carers. And it allowed us all to give and receive things from her that we would certainly never have been able to do had she got the sudden death that she wanted. Were you there for all of that? Two months? No, I wasn't. I was there for several weeks and then I had to come back. Because in a coma, nobody knows how long you can last. You can last an enormously long time with the right treatment. Now, it's, it's not um, uncanny that at the time she lapsed into a coma, so too did Ariel Sharon, who was the ex-Prime Minister of Israel. They literally went into a coma my mum and him, around about the same time. He survived for eight years. Eight years. Thank goodness my mother was spared that. She was only in a coma for two months. So what did cause her death in the end? She got an infection. And and I don't know whether they treated it or didn't treat it. All I was advised was that she had died and it was a merciful relief, as I say, because while she had been, her life had been prolonged more than she would have wanted it, it wasn't as, as long as Ariel Sharon's life. What, Shirley, do you think that your mother would have thought about her own death? Well, she certainly would have hated being in the situation she was. She, she would have been horrified that her hair had been shaved. She had beautiful curly hair, of which she was very proud. She would have been horrified that she was lying there with her mouth open and that she was wearing nappies. She, all of that she would have found absolutely horrifying. But the fact was she was oblivious to it. And so um, she might have been okay with it, given that she was oblivious of it. And that she, if she knew the great value she provided to everybody else. That, that speaks to, I guess, a reluctance of, that we all have to, uh, to lose dignity uh, at any time, but I suppose in a time like that when there's nothing that we can do about it. Um, interested to know how you responded to that as a family. Did you feel as though that was undignified, her being in that situation? Not at all. I I knew she would have felt that. But actually, the positive things she was providing outweighed the fact that she didn't have hair or that she was wearing a nappy. And, and of course, it's all dealt with, with such care and love by the nursing staff and everybody else that it, it wasn't unduly unpleasant once one got used to the shock of it, the initial surprise and shock. Well, that would have been a very thought-provoking experience for you from beginning to end, a full two-month process for you. And through that time, surely an opportunity for you to 
gather your own insights from that. So let's perhaps examine that now. Having had that experience, what do you take from it? Well, the first thing I would say is live fully. You never know when you're going to die. As I said, my mother had no inkling on that day that that would be her her last day fully alive. And nor did we. The second thing is be prepared. So have your end-of-life documentation in order because you could die at any point. So she was great in that she had a will and she had had this living will and we all knew her wishes. Despite the fact that we couldn't give effect to them, the fact is it was good to know what they were rather than be baffled and unsure. So great to have had that. Um, So I think the more prepared one can be, the better. However, it is not a guarantee that your wishes will be put into effect because there are such a multiplicity of situations that can and do arise that you could never envisage as I described. And also things change. And so if you choose a person to represent you, at least who will do the best by you, and you then just leave it to them and their discretion. Um, so tell, so share what it is that you want and what your hopes are for yourself. But at the end of the day, someone else is going to have to make those decisions for you in the lived situation, which you might not have anticipated. But it also made me realise that in our society, we come from such an individualistic perspective. It's about what I want at my death, my my wishes for myself. But what became apparent to me, and as I say, big surprise to me, was actually when one is dying or even after one has died, there's so many other people who are involved and impacted on by this. So your partners, your children, your extended family, even the community you belong to, large and small, and they're all involved. And so it becomes something that is not just an individualistic thing. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a community thing, a societal thing even. And in, in that regard, um, that society can be large or small, can't it? I mean, yes. in your case, it was the society of your family around her and the medical professionals yes. that were part of that process for her. And in other situations, that, that society might be even wider some people are much more connected with friends who are, who arguably might be the people at the top of their list if they were making living wills and having those kind of discussions. Absolutely. It's, it's whatever your community is. And so I'd always thought about what, what I wanted in the event of my death, and she thought about what she wanted in the event of her death. But when it actually came to pass, it was what was best for us and all of us. So my father, my brothers, me her religious community, everybody. Um, And it it wasn't as simple as I thought it would be, and nor as she had thought it would be either. Shirley, have you revisited your living will? (laughs) Yes, I have. I'm doing my own documentation all the time, and I'm just conscious that these are complex issues, grey areas, and it's it's something that I think about and work on all the time and revise all the time because... Things change and views change. Shirley, it's been most interesting hearing your story in this fascinating series, The Final Curtain. 
Um, thank you for taking some time to share that with me and with our listeners. It's my pleasure, Jeff. You've been listening to The Final Curtain, ordinary New Zealanders telling their stories about death. Podcasts from this series are available online at oar.org.nz and from the accessmedia.nz app. At Death Café Dunedin, the conversation continues. You can join that conversation by listening to other New Zealanders tell their stories about death and, if you want to, by sharing yours. Look for Death Café Dunedin on Facebook for updates and meeting times. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.